Morning. Okay, so today our passage is, as Matthew said in Philippians, um, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim proclaim Christ out of a selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. One of the striking things friends, about political convictions is the way that they can cause two different groups of people to have drastically different assessments of the exact same situation. Example, I experienced as much as a pastor firsthand after the presidential election in 2017. Some members of our church came to me filled with grief and anger. How on earth could such a terrible thing happen to our country? 
Other members of our church came to me filled with gratitude and joy. It's about time something good happened to our country. Same situation, right? Vastly different interpretations. Vastly different emotions. Why? Think about this. It's because each group brought a different set of desires to election night. One group wanted a Democratic candidate to win. The other group wanted a Republican candidate to win. Why do I bring that up? Because our desires, the things we want, they don't just exist, they do things. And in this case, as in many cases, they they become the lens through which we evaluate our circumstances. It's part of being human, being, being created in the image of, of God. We, we cannot separate our evaluation of the past or the present or the future from the desires in our heart. You can't disconnect those things. It's true in every area of life, not just politics. And the book of Philippians, if you're not familiar with it, the whole thing really says a lot about our spiritual desires. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, we think around AD 62, while he was in prison in Rome. And the reason he was in prison is because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. He's experiencing significant suffering as he writes this letter. And yet when he evaluates his life, that this is the stunning thing. Okay, The primary thing a guy languishing in a Roman prison sees is not suffering or deprivation. That's odd. And the primary emotion he feels isn't sadness or anger. So what does he see? He sees how God is using even his suffering to show the world just how great and glorious Jesus is. That's what Paul sees. So so what does he feel? Well, he feels joy. Over and over again in Philippians, rejoice, I'm rejoicing. You should rejoice, I'm rejoicing. What, What kind of guy rejoices in suffering, friend? It's a man or a woman who desires something very different than what the world desires. Paul is a man who loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. He he doesn't have a whole bunch of equally strong desires in his heart. He's consumed with a singular passion. There's something at the top of the desire pyramid. One thing, in fact, and that's a desire for the honor of Christ. It's at the top of the pyramid. It's not just milling around with a desire for pizza after service today. It's at the top of the pyramid. 
You could summarize this whole passage this way, I think. What's the main point of Philippians 1, 12 through 30? When the exaltation of Christ, this is Paul's story, is the supreme ambition of your life. It becomes the lens through which you evaluate every situation. That's the point. When the exaltation of Christ, the honor and glory of Christ, is is your supreme ambition, it becomes a lens through which you evaluate every situation. And that is why Paul doesn't perceive or respond emotionally to all of his circumstances and all of his suffering the way the world does. And his personal testimony here, it really confronts us with some very important questions. Again, I'm going to give you three of them, okay? This is the structure for what we'll briefly look at today. Think of this sermon as a helicopter tour. First, is Christ the center of your evaluation? Second, is Christ the focus of your desires? And finally, is Christ the aim of your life? Center of your evaluation, focus of your desires, aim of your life. Let's look at each one of these as we work through the passage briefly. First, is Christ the center of your evaluation? Verses 12 through 18. As he writes this letter, Paul knows the Philippians are well aware of what's happened to the guy. They know he's in prison, so he doesn't go into all the details of how he got there or how hard it is. He just jumps right in in verse 12. Look there to what he sees God doing through his imprisonment. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, before we think about how how Paul's imprisonment is connected to the gospel. Don't, don't miss how Paul talks or speaks about the gospel itself, okay? The good news of Jesus and all he's done to accomplish salvation for mankind, that's the gospel. As the word of God defines it, that's not a religious idea. It's a spiritual force. It's a divine power that was on the move in 62 AD and is still on the move today, advancing into new territory. Notice how Paul speaks of the gospel as something that doesn't, doesn't just exist, but it advances. It's on the move. And there are two ways the gospel advances through Paul's imprisonment that he flags here. First, the imperial guard which was kind of the elite unit of Roman soldiers responsible for prisoners like Paul, part of the praetorium in Rome. They were kind of special ops kind of guys. They all learned why Paul was in jail. Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, now, undoubtedly, most of them had never heard of Jesus before Paul shows up. Or if they had, you know, he's just one of the other random deities that sort of been swallowed up by Rome. But, but as they took turns guarding Paul, it gave them an opportunity to explain why he's in jail. He, he told them about a man named Jesus who had changed his life. 
That's the first way the gospel advanced. Here's the second, verse 14. Most of the brothers, Christians in the Roman church, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, when I read that, I think, you have to be kidding me. (laughs) If one of my close friends gets locked up with no hope of any deliverance or justice in jail for speaking about Jesus, I think one of the effects of that observation would be a bit of hesitation to do the same. (laughs) Sounds like a great way to get arrested. But Paul's saying the exact opposite happened. Well, what gives? Well, the Roman Christians looked at Paul. They observed his suffering and they began to think, you know what? If, if Jesus is worth that guy, Paul suffering like that, maybe he's worth me suffering for too. Maybe Paul sees something about Jesus that I need to see. And so they start speaking up. They're they're compelled by love for Paul and the Savior he proclaimed. They trusted the Lord that Paul's imprisonment, not to mention the potential of their own, what wasn't a sign that something had gone terribly wrong in the world, but rather in the perfect sovereignty of God's will, God had placed Paul in that prison. He, He didn't just happen to be there. He was put there, he says. He sees, he sees God at work in all those situations. Putting him there at that time in that prison with those soldiers for the sake of defending the gospel. It emboldened them, their own witness. But, but there's a second group in Rome who were emboldened by his imprisonment, but for very different reasons that had little to do with love for Paul or the gospel. In verses 15 and 17, Paul tells the Philippians that some preachers relished, they loved the thought that he's in jail because it gave them an opportunity to expand their brand, to increase their following. They they were preaching from rivalry and and envy, not sincerely, thinking to afflict Paul and, and convince some of his sheep to cross over into their fold. And as you think about that happening to the Apostle Paul, after all he had done and given up for Christ's sake, I think it would have been really easy for Paul to give in to self-pity. To just give in to it, you know, to feel sorry for himself, to to muse on the injustice of it all, or for his first thought every morning to be, I am stuck here because someone in the judicial department is a big (laughs) you-know-what. But that's not at all his emotional response. It's not that he's unaffected or ignorant of their attitudes and actions. He, He doesn't have his head in the sand, so to speak. But neither, listen, his physical condition or how other people are treating him is the center of his evaluation. Christ is. 
And as a result, not only is the guy not discouraged, he's rejoicing. Look at verse 18. In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Philippians, I rejoice. The gospel is advancing and I rejoice. More people are hearing about Jesus. And in that, I rejoice. So be honest, friend, as you confront that kind of example, when you evaluate your life, is is your personal comfort the yardstick you use to evaluate your circumstances? Or is it the advance of the gospel? What, What do you use to decide every morning and every night? Was it a good day? Or was it a bad day? Only when Christ is at the center of our evaluation, friends, will we have eyes to perceive and rejoice in in what we might otherwise overlook as as inconsequential or, or perhaps a consolation prize expression of God's grace. The most joyful Christians I know, without exception, are men and women who excel at playing a biblical version of I Spy. Kids, do you know how to play I Spy? What do you do, guys? You find something in your room. It has to be visible or else you're cheating, right? No cheaters. And you say, I spy something blue. And you want to pick the smallest, hardest thing possible, right? Like the piece of lint on the floor, you know? And the goal is for your friends to try to guess it, but never really get it. The most joyful Christians I know are people who excel at playing biblical I spy. They've got a a finely tuned radar for, for spotting Evidences of God's work all around them. Signs of the gospel advancing. And as I say that, please, please know I'm not talking about just looking on the bright side. Right? Like, well, you know, the main storyline at the top of my newspaper of my life is suffering, hardship, pain, mess. But, you know, I suppose I'm somewhat grateful and appreciate the gospel advancing, you know. No, no, I'm not talking about looking on the bright side or playing the optimist. I'm talking about perceiving reality, friend. Perceiving reality. Paul sees, listen to this. Paul sees what is actually true about his circumstances because he's focused on how God is at work in the midst of his circumstances. If he did not see, if we do not see how God is at work in the midst of our circumstances, then we're not actually seeing our circumstances for what they really are. We're blind. But because Paul sees how God's at work, because Christ is at the center of his evaluation, his heart's filled with joy. That's the first question. Is Christ at the center of your evaluation? Here's the second. Verses 19 to 26. Is Christ the focus of your desires? Look at verse 19. 
I think this is probably the most stunning and convicting verse in the entire passage. For I know he's chained to a Roman soldier when he says this. Of all the places God could put perhaps the most gifted evangelist and pastor that ever lived. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. What do you mean by deliverance, Paul? What does that look like in his mind? Well, if I'm in prison, I'll tell you what deliverance looks like in my mind, right? It means getting out of jail. Duh. Getting released, right? But that is not how Paul defines deliverance. Look at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope. This is what deliverance looks like. That I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. He's got two outcomes in his mind, okay? Shame and deliverance. And and notice neither one has anything to do with whether he's kept in prison or released from prison. So, so whether he will be ashamed or delivered, what, if it doesn't have anything to do with whether he's kept in prison or released from prison, what, well, then what is, what's it have to do with Paul? Well, it has everything to do with whether Jesus is glorified through his life. The ultimate shame, the ultimate wasted life, in Paul's view, is a life that fails to bring honor to Jesus. And the ultimate deliverance or vindication in Paul's view is a life that succeeds in bringing honor to Jesus. And as I say that, I think sometimes, especially as Christians, we can think of the whole God being glorified thing as as some sort of unstoppable cosmic train. (laughs) This just chugging along, doing its Jesus, your amazing thing out there in the universe somewhere. And it's not really connected to our personal, physical life. You following me? Which is why it only brings comfort for super Christians who have the emotional bandwidth and the easy enough life to get jazzed and excited about cosmic trains. That that is not, that's not a biblical perspective, friend. Because that's not what Paul says in verse 20. The the deliverance he anticipates could not be more personal or physical. Whether his present suffering ends in life. What's that in context? Personal, physical release from prison or death, personal, physical execution in prison. Either way, Paul knows he will be delivered. Why? 
because he knows, he, he believes, he trusts that God will enable him through the Philippians' prayers and the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit to honor Jesus, whether through life or death. There is a world of comfort for weary saints in verse 19. Have you ever thought to yourself, Lord, I know in theory you could be honored through my life. But honestly, I'm just not sure I have what it takes. Maybe I used to, and my life could have gone that way, but but not now. Not now. I'm so weak. Temptation lies close at hand. Old habits keep pulling my heart away from you. The, The whole glorify you thing would be nice, but I'm just not sure it's possible anymore. I think I'll try to just stay out of trouble, pay the bills, and keep the wife happy. Friend, if that's you, you need to do two things. First, ask for prayer. Paul did because God uses means. If Paul needed the prayers of the saints for Christ to be honored through his life, how much more do you and I? Ask for prayer. And second, do not forget, weary saint, that the spirit of the living God dwells in the weakest of Christians. Don't keep looking to how weak you feel. Look at how strong and mighty the spirit of God is. That's the point. And in fact, it's not until you actually begin to feel just how weak and incapable and inadequate you are that we actually begin to look to the one place we should have been looking for strength all along. Who among us is sufficient to make much of Christ? Who can say in this room, oh yeah, I'm able to honor Christ, whether by life or death, cut me loose. (laughs) We're not able. The Spirit of God is. And Christian, that is the Spirit that dwells in you. Don't look to yourself, hope in Him. And notice, Paul doesn't define deliverance, this whole, I know Christ will be honored thing, the way the world does. This is the the connection, because he doesn't desire what the world does. His definition is connected to his desires, his greatest desire. His supreme ambition runs infinitely deeper, as it were, than staying healthy, or avoiding suffering, or, or securing a comfortable retirement. That's about as far as American desires go. But not for Paul, because in verse 21, and some of the most vivid language in the entire book, his greatest desire just comes pouring out of him. Look there. He literally says, for to me, to live 
Christ. And to die, gain. When I consider my life, Philippians, that's what it's all about. That's what it's about. Jesus, it's all about Christ. Jesus isn't one more thing in my busy schedule, guys. He's the one thing everything orients around and is connected to because he's the focus of my desires. My strongest, greatest, deepest affection and desire is for Christ. Could you say that? Honestly? What establishes your identity? Or rules your affections? Or defines your purpose? What what, what does it mean in your mind's eye to live in the fullest sense? Well, there's only one life-giving answer for a Christian. It's Jesus. Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, serving Jesus, and being with Jesus because he's worth it, guys. That the focus of Paul's desire wasn't Christ plus work or Christ plus health or Christ plus recognition or Christ plus justice, Christ plus the kids, Christ plus any of the thousands of other good things that we can want and live for in this life. It was simply Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. It it was the the promise of Christ that made life worth living in Paul's eyes. And it was Christ that made death worth dying in Paul's eyes. Don't miss that. For all who hold fast to Christ in obedient faith, death is what? Immeasurably more than just an escape, a jet out from all the craziness and sorrow of this life. It means going home to heaven, Christian. Where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Death is not primarily for the Christian a sorrow, a pain, a grief, or a loss. It's a what? Gain. It's gain. It's victory. It's a win in the greatest way imaginable. Look at verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ Translated literally, check this out. For that is much more better. Kids, if you have an English teacher, would they ever let you write much more better? Right? No. Too many adjectives. Too too many comparative adjectives. We don't write much more better. That's exactly what Paul wrote in Greek. It's as if he ran out of Linguistic resources. He just starts piling them up for how much better it's going to be to be with Jesus. And yet, that doesn't make him despondent at the thought of living in a world riddled with injustice and brokenness. Verse 22, for if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. 
we love to share the things we're passionate about, don't we? Think about this, right? It's what happens when, when you get a foodie talking about their favorite restaurant, right? Or this is one of my favorites. When you get an engaged young man talking about his fiance. I love to do this. You know, I can kind of go there as a pastor without having to build a lot of bridges. You know, what do you love about your fiance? Oh, man. It's like, where do I start? She's, oh, Matthew, I don't know. She's amazing. She's amazing. Paul's love for Jesus caused him to love what Jesus loved. It caused him to love Christ's bride, the people of God, and and to spend himself helping churches like the Philippians grasp and come to know just a little part of something of the loveliness of Christ. He spent himself for that. Verse 25, look there. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that, listen, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Do it with me. His his sights were set so much higher than than paying the bills or, or raising decent kids or just getting to the week at the beach. Paul had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So what did that do? It it filled him to the brim with readiness, eagerness to talk, to share, to help other people see the same so so that Jesus would receive from them the love and honor and worship that he deserves. That Paul couldn't get over Helping people like the Philippians enjoy a growing relationship with God. Does that sound familiar? It's the vision of our church. (laughs) Was the goal of his life. But listen, it wasn't because Paul was a pastor. Don't give yourself that out. (laughs) Part of his vocational calling. I serve elsewhere. She's like, no, no, the the reason that was his passion is because Christ was the focus of his desires. Yeah, he was a pastor, but that's not why he cared about helping everybody around him love and delight and rejoice in Jesus. Just like an engaged guy just can't stop talking about amazing his girl is. Christ was the focus of his desires. Could you say the same Christian? Is there a person or group of people in this church you can point to and humbly say, here's how I'm praying for them. Here's how I'm serving them. Here's how how I'm encouraging them in the Lord. Here's how I'm trying to help them love Jesus too. I'm not saying you have to do everything the apostle Paul was called to do. I'm I'm saying that if, that if, if Christ is the focus of your desires, his body will be the recipient of your spiritual labor without fail. You you will not be content to attend a Sunday service and go home. Even if you're a natural introvert, you you will be compelled to love God's people relationally if Christ is the focus of your desires. That's the question. Is he the focus? Here's the final one. 
verses 27 to 30, is Christ the aim of your life? See, the center of your evaluation, the focus of your desires, is the aim of your life. In these verses, Paul summarizes what progress and joy in the faith, if you notice that phrase, what it actually practically looks like. It's one of those great spots where he says something and then he just double clicks it. Definition, please, Paul. What what is progress and joy in the faith? Click, click, look like. Well, here's what it means. Here's what it looks like to make much of Jesus. If Christ is the focus of your desires, here's how you'll live. Check out verses 27 to 30. Here's how you will help other people live. What's it look like? Well, it looks like a life that is shaped, friends, in every aspect by the gospel. By who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Look look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul does not have a category for someone who says, oh yeah, I love Jesus. But their life is absolutely no different than the rest of the world. He doesn't have a category for that. Hear that loud and clear if you've steered away from Christianity, friend, because of Christian hypocrisy. God cares more and takes Christian hypocrisy even more seriously than you do. A genuine Christian, by definition, is a person who lives a gospel-centered life in the sense that Christ and him crucified makes a a necessary authoritative claim on every aspect of our life. Your life, Christian. No areas off limits. Your work, sexuality, your finances, your friendships, your hospitality, your entertainment, your streaming choices, you name it. And the command, the the imperative Paul uses in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy, has strong political undertones. It, It means more literally to live as a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you lived in Philippi, that that hit home. Because the whole city at one point in Roman history got was given the gift of Roman citizenship. And so it's Paul's way of reminding them and us that that living a gospel-centered life starts with something. It starts with remembering we are not citizens, Christian, of the kingdom of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our primary loyalty, therefore, isn't to Caesar, it's to King Jesus. So here's what loyalty to the king who laid down his life for us requires. Here's some highlights of what a gospel-centered life looks like. Five things. First, it means standing firm. He says, keep, keeping our feet firmly planted on the truth of God's word. Always. Second, it means living in unity. With what? One spirit. One mind. That, that doesn't mean we, we agree on every matter of secondary importance. It does mean that, that we pursue peace in our friendships, in our, in our marriages, even when it's the last thing we feel like doing. It does mean we take conversational initiative to talk with people who don't look like us so that the church isn't divided by ethnicity. 
Third, it means striving, Paul says, side by side for the faith of the gospel. What's that? Persevering in the the hard, necessary, messy work of helping each other fight for holiness and walk in love and and good works. It, It means we don't wait for opportunities to make Christ known or for our mission to succeed because a non-Christian just happened to randomly walk in on a Sunday morning that nobody knows. (laughs) Think about it. How will people that right now in this community who don't know Jesus come to know him? They will not show up here because there's a sign out front. Tens of thousands of people drive by that sign every day. And weeks can go by and not one of them is here in this room. Why not? Because the way the mission to help other people delight in Christ the way we do goes forward is through the same kind of loving, relational, pursuing initiative Paul practiced toward the Philippians. It means pursuing relationship with our neighbors on our initiative. Serving them, caring for the community that the Lord has has placed you in, friend, and then then seeking to connect your non-Christian friends with your Christian friends and to, to join them in explaining, listen, here's the real difference Jesus makes in my life. If we're not willing to take relational initiative, It's not going to happen. I don't say that to discourage you, but to remind us, God, through the help of the Holy Spirit, remember he's strong on our weakness, is eager to use you to introduce other people to the Savior you love. It means striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, taking initiative. Fourth, it means living with courage in the face of cultural opposition. It takes courage, guys, to obey God's word and not live the way everybody else is living. It takes courage to speak up for the goodness of God's authority when self-autonomy is all the rage. It takes courage to, to compassionately explain what scripture teaches about gender or sexuality at, at risk of being misunderstood or, or hated. Look at verse 28. When we like the Philippians, like Paul, are not frightened in anything, our bravery becomes a really powerful testimony to to our trust in the Lord and his faithfulness to vindicate his people. And finally, if Christ is the aim of your life, it means living a life where you willingly suffer for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. If you purpose to make Christ the aim of your life, if you resolve to spend and be spent for the sake of Jesus and helping the people around you come to know and follow him, it will cost you something big, friends. It'll cost you money, 
It'll cost you time. It'll cost you comfort, convenience, security, relationships, physical health. It will require making decisions that prioritize Christ renown over your own ease. Such is the life our Lord has granted us as a gift. Why? Because we follow a suffering servant. And because we follow a suffering servant, not one bit of that cost or that suffering or that pain is ever wasted or ever purposeless or ever mucking around in the ditch of God's sovereign universe. It shouts, Jesus is worth it. It shouts that to your spouse, to your kids, to your grandchildren, to your, to your neighbor who's like, you get up every Sunday to do what? I, it shouts that. It means your life has become a testimony to the infinite worth of, of Christ. Because can we just be honest at the front of this series? What are those lesser glories in comparison to him? What, what is the glory of the moon in comparison to the sun? What, what is the glory of the created things in comparison to the creator? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen, Paul says. And so as we begin this series, join me in wrestling with three questions. Okay? Is Christ the center of your evaluation? Is Christ the focus of your desires? Is Christ the aim of your life? And let me give you a little hint. Your answer to question one will give you the answer to question two. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for a reminder through our brother Paul that you are so worth it. So worth it. We pray, even as we sing this final song, Lord, that you would seal these words on our hearts, that you would begin to awaken a new hunger and thirst and ache and longing for something infinitely better than our comfort. Purify our hearts, God, that we could say with Paul to live it's Christ and nothing less. Amen.